Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 554 with one of my favorite people in the entire world, my friend Don Morgan. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I am a former comedian and TV host that uh, made his money telling dick jokes. What do you think of that? How's that for some some bona fides? The website for uh, the show is metalpod.com and metalpod. Also, the social media handles you can uh, follow us at. I want to kick things off with a an email I got from... And she writes, Hi, Paul. Today I left my marriage. I knew I was unhappy. The main issue we had been working on for 11 years had made very little progress and it was maddening, but I wouldn't leave. So my brain decided to help get me out. This is how. I started having these episodes of racing thoughts where I felt like I couldn't trust my own thoughts and I didn't know what was real. It was so scary that I reached out to my sometimes therapist. In his calm and reassuring way, he held up the proverbial mirror as my own needs come coming rushing up to the surface gasping for air, I knew it was time to honor what it was I wanted for my life. I called a hotline, packed my stuff, and left the next day. The level of euphoria I felt all the rest of that day was like nothing I've ever felt before. 
I had just been freed of a prison of my own making. The gift of waiting so long to give yourself what you need is that when you finally do, it is that much sweeter. I think what she's saying is, is stay in bad relationships way too long. Uh, As I opened up to my family and started exploring my own thoughts, I felt lighter and less burdened. The rest of my life is for whatever my inner self wants. That is so fucking beautiful and just a thousand high fives. A thousand high fives. This is an email I got from James, and he writes, Good day. This is James. I found your website is selling cycling socks. You definitely need long-term cooperation. We believe we are suitable. Men's socks as a professional socks factory, essential in the market. We have made custom socks for more than 17 years. Let us know if you have any questions. James. Oh, James, I have so many questions. First of all, I don't know how you found the webpage where I secretly sell men's cycling socks, but kudos to you for navigating that labyrinth. Um, And the reason that the cycling socks are hidden is they're so fantastic. I knew that if word got out, the website would explode with popularity. I mean, we sell so many different types of cycling socks. We we sell uh, cycling socks for a short pant tuxedo. We sell cycling socks for uh, those old-timey bathing suits with the stripes. We sell cycling socks uh, for animals. A lot of those get returned because people buy it not realizing that their pet doesn't know how to ride a bike. But still, it's been a smashing success. And... um, I do, I do have a lot of questions, James, but uh, I'm going to have to write them down and um, get back to you. But thank you. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and Melissa says, have you ever felt like your mental illness is invalid or not enough for you to be considered unwell enough to deserve or get treatment or help? That is such a great question, Melissa. And yes, I've gone through periods where I feel like maybe I'm just lazy. You know, maybe I'm just making excuses for my lack of productivity or not wanting to get out of bed or just, you know, playing too many video games or sleeping 12 hours. But the longer I've been getting help for it, the less I feel that way. And I think I'm in a place today where I can have compassion for myself and stop that voice in my head when it starts to to tell me those things. You know, one of the things that, that helps me is to look at depression or anxiety or whatever addiction as a flu of the of the brain or the the soul. And I try to treat myself with the same compassion that I would if I had the actual physical flu. And I found that that helps me. So I hope that helps you. This is from the Shame and Secret survey uh, filled out by (laughs) 
Weenie Hut Jr. I have not heard a vagina referred to as a weenie hut since maybe I was seven years old. Uh... She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Oh, I would say it's a lot more dysfunctional than that. I would say totally chaotic. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And I would say this absolutely counts. Uh, At a party with friends, I got really drunk, blacked out, and my friend put me to bed. I woke in and out of consciousness in my own bed with a friend's with a friend of a friend whom I didn't know. There were two men in my bed without my consent. I could feel hands all over my body and someone kissing me as I drifted in and out of consciousness but didn't have the strength to push them away. Luckily, I had my clothes on but woke up trembling and crying to my best two girlfriends. I have so much guilt about it and constantly blame myself that if I controlled my alcohol, this would never have happened. Sadly, this type of situation, we get so often filled out on the surveys. And, you know, I I don't care if you're passed out drunk, naked in an alley. That does not give someone the right to do something to you. You know, but... You know, by that same token, it would be, uh, you know, if you were driving erratically and you got into a car accident and you were knocked unconscious, would that give the uh, the EMTs uh, free reign to do whatever they wanted to you? Uh, she says she's never been physically abused or emotionally abused. Um, darkest thoughts. Every time I have a relationship growing with a good guy friend, I always fantasize about getting married, having sex, and having kids, and then I scare myself. I tend to back away from the relationship because I'm afraid of the vulnerability and attachment issues I have. I'm afraid that I'm not good enough for them. Darkest Secrets I started seeing a mental professional last year, and I finally feel comfortable with my current psychiatrist. I've never become comfortable with any professional because I was ashamed to share my ugly sides. He's the only one I've ever been this honest to. I'm really trying to be better. I think I've started to have a crush on him because he actually understands me. I feel so safe in his presence. It's really the first time I've had someone really care and listen to me tell my story and cry. Now I fear that if I tell him of my distraction, he will terminate his services to me. I have issues with intimacy and abandonment, and I get so torn that I always end up letting the time pass by, hoping that the problem will disappear if I ignore it. I started seeing a mental professional last year, and I finally feel comfortable with my current psychiatrist. I've never become comfortable with any professional because I was ashamed to share. Oh, I think that this is uh, repeating. Um, Yeah, I don't know why that... uh, or maybe she cut and, and pasted it, but uh, it is so common to develop a crush on a therapist or psychiatrist when they are compassionate and they see us and feel us. And for a lot of us, it is the first relationship that we feel 
really, really safe in. So of course our brains are going to extrapolate that to, I want to live with this person. I want to feel this way all the time. And I think that that is, I've shared that with my therapist before. Um, and that can actually give them information to help you even further explore what's going on inside you. Um, and I think inside that is an awesome thing, which is that you are getting in touch with intimacy. You are getting in touch. You are experiencing what it's like to have your needs met, your emotional needs met. And the good news is, is that becomes a template for the relationships that you would develop outside of the clinical setting. And you will know what's possible so that you can begin to get your needs met and you can, you can stop accepting crumbs or running away from relationships. Um, and when I said that I, I, I thought her uh, environment she was raised in was much more than slightly dysfunctional, I was thinking of another survey. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having dirty sex with random strangers to feel loved. Sharing that makes me feel disgusting. First of all, if you're doing sex right, it's going to be dirty. And uh, there is nothing disgusting about your fantasy. You are a human being. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I really care about you and I'd do anything for you. I just have a hard time letting myself be vulnerable with you because of my fear of not being enough. What, if anything, do you wish for? To accept myself, flaws, and everything, and to not be afraid of taking chances and be vulnerable. And you're already doing that. You're doing that with your psychiatrist. It's so awesome. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm too afraid of showing my ugly side. I think that will get easier for you if you choose to begin to open up to other people outside of your meetings with your psychiatrist. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Don't be afraid to be you. You are beautiful and you are loved. And then parentheses, I have no problem saying it to other people, but I have a hard time accepting it myself. Well, welcome to the club. Thank you for that beautiful, beautiful survey. We are sponsored this week, as always, by the online therapy provider, betterhelp.com. Uh, if you've never tried online therapy, why not give it a shot? Why not give it a shot? Especially if you live in the boonies, you know, why would you drive 45 minutes to, uh, go see a therapist if you could see one from the privacy and, and comfort of your own home or your own motorcycle? your own car, wherever you want to do it. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Fill out a survey and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. And you need to be over 18. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by... Uh, a woman who calls herself, what just happened, question mark. And uh, she writes, a few months ago, I decided to finally get medication to treat my severe OCD. Unfortunately, the process of finding the right medication has not been smooth. The last medication I tried caused me go 
to go into mania for the first time in my life. I thought it was just depression lifting, but when I finally returned down to earth, I realized that I had spent the last two weeks spending thousands of dollars and so many hours on painting and redecorating my entire condo. My other clue that it was perhaps mania, I looked around and saw that I had decided to go from my usual beige to the brightest lemon yellow in my main area, truly lurid acid green accessories on acid green walls in the bathroom, and a bedroom that looked like a tribute to cherry blossoms in Fifty Shades of Pink. Definitely not what I'd ever consciously wanted before, but somehow just the coolest, most unique space I've ever lived. And I mentally glossed over two weeks of constant hard labor redecorating that I'd avoided for years and did it like it was nothing. However, my body is absolutely aching now. I consider that a very lucky brush with mania as it can have such terrible consequences. Don't worry, I'm going off of the meds under psychiatric supervision and I'm going to try yet another one. Wish me luck. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm here with uh, with my good friend Don Morgan. Uh, there there are few uh, careers uh, of people that I've interviewed yet that are as lengthy and as to me as interesting and uh, and cool as as yours. You're a, a cinematographer. You've been nominated for nine Emmys. You've won five of them. Uh, you were the cinematographer on one of my favorite movies ever, uh, Starman, uh, starring Jeff Bridges. Uh, you also did uh, Christine, uh, what, uh, which, which I wouldn't list as one of my favorite movies, a good movie, but uh, not a movie that, uh, that is up there with Starman in, uh, in my mind. Um, and your story is, is so interesting to me. Um, tell, the, uh, tell the people about... Uh, what your childhood was like, where you, where you come from. Well, uh, as you can tell, I'm not the youngest cat on the block. I'm uh, <laughs> 79 years old, so I was born in 1932. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, Depression time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad came from Missoula, Montana, came to California to be a singer, which never happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, he met my mom, who's from uh, St. Louis, and uh, they uh, they connected, and uh, and along came me. Uh, they were together for the first two years, and then they divorced. And uh, my mother uh, 
my mother's favorite tradition was to marry people, and uh, <laughs> she uh, she brought home a few stepdads. So it was kind of a different childhood. So your mom married a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah, she was busy, and mm-hmm. uh, my dad remarried, and uh, they both had kids, and. I was sort of the odd man out, uh, you know, because I was older and they both had new families. Right. <clears throat> so um, I don't blame this on any of my uh, my problems. Uh, I, early on, and this was not diagnosed by anybody uh, until later on in life, I had learning disabilities, and, of course, they just thought I was acting out. So there was a lot of conflict about, Don, do your homework, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I am practically illiterate. Yeah. And uh, 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 I have no explanation why I can't do some things. Right. What's what's the line that you have about uh, being a, a cinematographer? I'm a cinematographer. I don't know how to spell it, but I are one, and uh, and that's uh, that's pretty much the truth. Yeah. Uh, you know, through the years, I've certainly picked up. Uh, uh, you know, I can spell a little better than I could, but uh, it just goes through my head. Is it dyslexia that you have? I have that also. Yeah. But uh, that has nothing to do with the the spelling and the reading and. Um, I read a lot now. I, I, I don't know where that came from, but I read a lot. I read a lot of spiritual books. and uh, um, Is it what we call porn? <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm beyond the porn. Uh, well, I actually heard about you, uh, <clears throat> Eckhart Tolle from, from you. You were uh, touting the power of now. And, uh, and I, it's funny, I bought it and... I literally had it sitting uh, next to my lazy boy for a year and a half thinking, I'm going to get to it tomorrow. I'm going to get to it tomorrow. And uh, finally, I was like, uh, all right, I got I to gotta read this thing so I can know what Don Morgan is talking about when he runs his fucking mouth about this book that helped him. And uh, and I read it and I was like, wow, this is a, this is a pretty profound, uh, profound book. Yeah, uh, my wife bought it uh, for me several Christmases ago, and uh, I liked the title, but it never clicked, uh, The Power of Now. Right. I think it meant, why don't you read it now, you know, and it right. sat there uh, on the back of the toilet for uh, for probably a year before I opened it up, and uh, uh, it helped a lot because now is all we got. You know, when I start getting into tomorrow or yesterday— um, uh, you you used one of the words, one of my favorite words. I'm fucked yeah. when I when I get into either one of those uh, those areas. But uh, you know, childhood was was uh, was rough for me. Uh, I acted out a lot. I ran away a lot. I got in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, by the time I was 13, I was sent to a boys' home uh, by the court because I was uh, just absolutely. You know, I was carrying a gun when I was 13. I thought I was going to be a gangster. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've tried so many things. My mother used to say, Don, you got to go to school or you're just, you're never going to amount to anything. And I thought, you know, if you got a fucking gun, you don't need to amount to much, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, you know, so you pull a few bank jobs. I loved gangster movies yeah. and I loved cowboy movies. Uh-huh. And I ended up being very poor at both of those, by the way. Oh, you really? Know, I, I rode in professional rodeos when I was 16. Um, How'd that work out? 
Can we change the subject? <laughs> it wasn't good, huh? <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I met a lot of guys, and we drank a lot, and I had a phony ID that said I was 26 when I was 16 or 17, and I'd go into the bars in those days, and they'd say, you got an ID, and I'd plunk this thing down. It said I weighed 165 pounds. I weighed 100, and I think I weighed 127 pounds at the time. Yeah. Said I had blue eyes, they were brown, but no one cared in those days. It's yeah. not like today. Right. You know, if you had an ID, you had an ID. Right. And uh, so I drank in bars and I got in a lot of fights. And uh, uh, as you can tell by looking at me, the audience can't, but uh, I'm slight built, mm-hmm. but I have a very tough mouth. Yeah. I'm able to invite guys out to kick the shit out of me and uh, <laughs> it usually got done, you know. So yeah, what's what's the other thing they used to say? I've been uh, I've been in uh, how many fights? Oh, I've been in six hundred fights. Lost them all by knockouts. The next guy that fucks with me is going to be in trouble. I'm due for a win. <laughs> <laughs> so you had this this kind of painful uh, childhood, searching for 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 something, some some place to fit in in the world, which I think so many people can can relate to you, you know when we think back to to being young we always think oh it'd be so great to be young again to have that 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 young body but i wouldn't trade it for anything to have all that anxiety and that questioning of where where am i going to wind up am i going to be special uh it, it's it's torture especially if if the feedback that you're getting from your surroundings is that you're fucked well uh yeah I uh, my, I think that uh, the, you know, my sister used to say that I was a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. Yeah. And uh, and it, it's true because I saw myself in, in moments of brilliance. I thought I would do, I, I used to think I would do big, big things that really would make me important. For an example, I bought a race car one time. Uh, an old piece of crap that no one would have bought but me. And I went out and tried to be a professional race car driver, another one of my great ideas. Yeah. These were all things, by the way, that you had needed no diploma, if you'll notice. Right. And, uh, and uh, you know, I kept, I, I had visions of winning the Indianapolis Speedway. And instead of, uh, instead of uh, anything, like when I was in rodeos, Instead of doing little rodeos around my neighborhood, you know, where I lived, uh, where, where amateurs did it, I went right out and started riding with the big guys. I went to the Helderado days in Las Vegas, and, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the toughest bunch of guys and, and, and rodeo stock that you could get on. Sure. So there was no way I could compete. Right. You know, I, I, I've always started at the top and worked my way down. It's a, it's a must for me, you know. Uh, I never start at the beginning. Uh, you know, even when I open a book now, I realize, uh, when, you know, the more, the more you examine yourself and the more you try to better yourself, the more you tell on yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you uh, become aware of, of the stupid things that you do. Right now, I cannot open a book at the beginning, I'll start to read a little bit, and then I'll, 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 I'll flip it back to the back page and see what was going on, you know. Really? I never, I never let it reveal itself and feel the excitement of wondering what, you know. Right. It I, sounds like you're pretty impatient. 
Is that? Uh, Did you, you notice? <laughs> have you been talking <laughs> well, to my wife? <laughs> well, that's funny. You never have struck me. You know, we've spent a lot of time together, uh, hanging out with with mutual friends. Yet you've never struck me as an Im- impatient person. You're you're somebody that so many, myself in- included, so many people look up to because you help a lot of people. You have this this great marriage. You have this uh, this great career. But m- most importantly, you have this piece about you. In this sense of humor about your shortcomings that uh, I, I really admire. So uh, to hear that you're this really impatient guy. Well, it's, it's something that I work on all yeah. the time. I mean, uh, uh, I used to have a friend. We'd go in the uh, go in the restaurant, and he'd say, "Don never quite let his ass sit on the chair before he goes. Where's that fucking waiter? You know." Uh, <laughs> and and. Uh, my wife was a waitress when she was young, and she's always telling me, uh, uh, Don, calm down. We're in no hurry. Uh, no, I still have stuff I got to work on. I, I think I would be, um, I think when you finally decide you have nothing else to work on, you might as well let them pound dirt in your face because uh, I, I think that's the excitement about life is learning that there's always another uh, another lesson to be learned, and I learn them daily. And I am, uh, for the most part, I am patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a thing that I work on. But there are things, like I said, the book, uh, or, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, when I'm watching television, after I watch the first few minutes and find out that there was a crime committed, Sometimes I'll go take a bath and then run out and see if they solved it, you know. Right. Uh, and and it's just uh, it's a thing that happens on on occasions. But um, so so let's go back to uh, your uh, young adult. Your what it, the, when you're trying your race car driving stuff. You're what your late teens, early twenties. You're you're trying to find yourself. How did you come to uh, stumble into uh, cinematography? Well. Uh, my dad was an animation cameraman in the old days for Disney, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he. Now, used, what kind of relationship did you did you have with your dad? Well, my dad was. Did your did your when your parents split up, they split up, correct? Yeah, yeah, correct. Who did you live with? Uh, I think they had a lotto, and whoever. <laughs> uh, lost got me for a while i never stayed at any one place you know forever so was there a feeling that you weren't as wanted as you wished you uh, would be (laughs) is that an understatement yeah i thought uh, yeah i i felt like i was uh you know i used to think when uh, i used to run away all the time when i was young and and i was good at at what age uh 13 okay I mean, I ran away uh, from that boys' home that I was sent up to, right. and I stayed out for I probably a month as a little kid, thirteen years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I ran away from that boys' home, and I was able to stay out for uh, you know I, I'm not sure the uh, amount of days, but I, I would guess a month. And some of the stuff that happened on the road was unbelievable. I ended up down in uh, San Diego. I lived in the Los Angeles area. I ended up down in San Diego, and I heard about Tijuana, mm-hmm. and it was wartime, uh, not Civil War time, but uh, <laughs> World War II. Right. And uh, I went across the border. Uh, you could just walk across in those days. And uh, 
uh, a bunch of little Mexican kids fed me and told me if I'd bring sailors to these hookers, I'd make a dollar a sailor. So I brought one sailor to one hooker and did eight days in jail down there. And, uh, you know, they cut me 13 loose. years old, yeah. you're in a Tijuana jail. What, what was that like? And then they fed you in the prison. So, yeah, but that was good food. Yeah, it was great. And I spent one night in the prison, which was unbelievable. I mean, I was so scared. You would have thought oh, wait, I... Hold, hold on. How many days did you spend in the, in the prison? Just one night? No, it was eight days in jail, but one of the nights uh, the, uh, they left us in the prison because I guess it was full or something. Oh, I see. The prison is different than the jail. They used to have to take you to the, from the jail to the prison every, every morning to feed you. So we would stay in the prison all day, and then they would bring us back. In a, and the jail was safer than the prison. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking you. No, I, I think. Um, were they both shitty, I imagine, huh? They were unbelievable. Well, describe it to me. Well, the jail itself, uh, you know, was made for, you know, probably overnight visits. You know, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of sailors were in there with their teeth knocked out and i mean it, it was brutal because they you know guys would get down there and get noisy and mm -hmm. the cops used to beat the crap out of them and throw them in jail we'd wake up and it wasn't odd to see a guy with a couple of teeth missing his ears bleeding or something a black black guy and um i mean i'm not the picture when i painted i can't even believe it because it sounds like i'm uh, making it a little more glorious than it was but I've never, you slept on the, on the uh, concrete floor and the crapper was broke. Guys were actually crapping on the floor uh, in the bathroom because uh, the toilet was overrunning wow. and no one ever fixed it while I was there the eight days. Uh, when you went to the prison, it was a little nicer. They had holes that you pooped in and the water would uh, take it somewhere. I don't know where in the hell it took it, but no, no actual toilets. There wow. was just a little running water in there, and the walls were, they, if, if my memory serves me right, they were like adobe walls. They had wire around them and broken glass stuck in them, so if you climbed up, you'd cut your hands. And Are you sure you weren't watching a Sam Peckinpah movie? Let me think. <laughs> no, I tell you, it's, it's unbelievable, wow. and I thought, and, you and would have thought when I got out of there that I would never do anything wrong the rest of my life, but... Right. Uh, the minute I got out, I was Don Morgan again. Was there any temptation when you were there to call your parents and say, I made a big mistake, uh, can I come back? No one, and I mean no one, not one officer, not one probation guy, not one court, not one anything talked to me. There was nobody to tell, call my mommy. It was unbelievable. I mean, I'm 13 years old and no one came in and talked to me till the eighth day and um you must have been freaking out oh yeah and, and the guys would pull your leg and say you're never going to get out of here you're going to be uh sent down to middle mexico and work on a prison farm i mean they used to mess with me and all you were the... by yourself you didn't have a buddy with nobody you or nobody nobody that must have been so traumatic um i still remember it pretty well yeah i would imagine it'd be burned into your in your memory all the all those details so so you get out uh, of that and do you go directly home or do you still stay out? no i still was running around yeah. and i finally got caught and they sent me back home and uh i didn't even have to go back to the boys home for some reason they let me stay at home and uh and why had you been put in the in the boys home uh 
for carrying crimes. that gun. Just for carrying the gun. Yeah. I got caught twice in uh, the same town in Pasadena carrying a gun, and they told me the first time, you ever caught again with a gun, we're going to send you away. And I, I thought they meant Alcatraz or San Quentin, somewhere romantic like the movies, you know. Right. But Pacific Lodge Home for Boys, <laughs> no, no glamour there, so I ran away from that. Yeah. Uh, but you hadn't, you weren't committing crimes with the gun other than having a gun. No, I it's just not like you were shooting people or no, robbing banks. No, as a matter of fact, to make it even sound a little more uh, shitty than it was, I used to carry it in my belt. You know, stick it in my belt, and I was always afraid I'd shoot my dick off. So I always <laughs> had the bullets in my pocket. Up, so uh, it took a little of the romance out of it. It wasn't really a loaded gun all the time. Yeah, but but to you, the image of yourself as a gangster was your way out. If I could just be tough enough, if I could be manly enough, uh, maybe somebody will love me. Is, is am I wrong in assuming that? No, I don't think so. I I uh, I used to go and I'd see movies. Uh, I remember there was a character that Dan Derrier, an old actor, played. He was Silky Sullivan. And I always saw myself as Silky Morgan, you know, the mm -hmm. the, the badass gangster. And, uh, you know, they always had gun malls and girlfriends and, uh, you know, they uh, went down in a blaze of glory. And I, uh, for some reason, I thought that was great. So if you can't belong to the Boy Scouts and do well, mm -hmm. and you can't belong in school and do well, you search for something that you could do well. And I think that was my, my uh, uh, without knowing that, I think uh, trying to be a, a, a gangster, a rodeo rider, a race car driver, I owned a gas station for 10 minutes and I drank uh, the business up, uh, you know, and, and uh, everything I tried, uh, I heard one of our friends, and you, you, I think you'll know who, who said this, but... He said, when I look in the mirror, I see the problem. Yeah. When I look in the mirror, I also see the solution. Oh, wow. So the problem and the solution was me yeah. with help. I couldn't do it by myself, of right. course. Uh, and I, you know, later on we'll talk about the help. But um, uh, these were all, you know, I was trying to belong somewhere. As, mm -hmm. Okay. Then let's, uh, let's move forward uh, beyond your, uh, your Mexico odyssey. Uh, what what was the next kind of uh, important time in 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 your life? Well, I think uh, I, I think at at some point, um, you know, I got married early. I was uh, twenty years old. And I married a woman uh, twenty seven. Mm -hmm. She was very cranky. She wanted me to come home at night and work once in a while, and uh, <laughs> that didn't work out. She uh, I don't know what was wrong with her. And what was your drinking like at this point? It was uh, nonstop. It yeah. was uh, as much as I could consume, and uh, um, at what age did you uh, the drinking abnormally or doing drugs abnormally start for you? Oh, the minute I put it to my lips, I was, it was uh, no. But what age? Uh, Thirteen. Yeah. Okay. Back when I, you know, when all that real trouble started, okay. uh, um, I was very good at stealing. I used to go in these little stores and buy a pack of gum and come out with a bottle of wine and. Mm -hmm. The older kids liked me because I was good at boosting, and uh, yeah. you know, and that that even uh, that even made it more romantic. You know that uh, people like me. I did anything that I could do to make somebody like me. Yeah. Uh, you know what? When when I did go to school, which was rare, uh, 
never going to school uh, when they got, went out for sports. I didn't know how to do it. You know, I've yeah. never played a game of baseball. I've never played football. I, I, I've never done any of those things. Mm. So uh, certainly no one was going to pick me, and I wasn't the jock of school. So it seems like everywhere that you turned, you were an outcast. That's true. So who wouldn't get who wouldn't get loaded? You know, at, at that point. Uh, but what, I mean, what else would any normal human being do? Well, drinking and using drugs to me, the minute I got uh, whatever in me, uh, I became whatever I wanted to be. I remember sitting in bars. Uh, uh, I had a friend that we used to sit in bars, and and uh, we both got our cars repossessed. So we we pooled our resources and bought a Lincoln, and it was a pretty good looking Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we put a small down payment on it. Never made a payment. We just hid out with it, and uh, we'd drive up and we'd take turns. He used to work in the, your your hope was that you would elude the repossessors and get oh, to keep yeah. it for as long as possible. Yeah, but I mean it made us look good. You know, right. we were both sick and we were both uh, you know, we'd sit in a bar and uh talk about our Lincoln to somebody and uh, you know, but we we would take turns acting like it was his or mine, you right. know, and And how old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was about um maybe 25 or somewhere okay. in the in the early 20s okay and uh but I, but we would dream up these stories about what we did for livings and and just you know with a few drinks and and looking in the bar mirror mm-hmm. you know how gorgeous you get sure. with a few drinks oh, and yeah. how tough and and the stories just i mean i i can't even believe the whopper stories can you remember and, any of them but just uh, talking about whatever you know, I, I, I could I could uh, tell him that I was a, a, a famous race car driver, and uh, or you know talk about famous the rodeo, rodeo stars. Days. You yeah. know, I just BS. Yeah, just BS. Uh, around that time, I did get a job once in a while in, in film laboratories. You know, processing film, and I got fired out of a lot of them, but. Uh, uh, I did start making a little bit of a living and uh, hope that I could uh, change my life, which never happened, or it did eventually. But uh, right. um, so you're you're drinking a lot. You're you got a part time job in a in a film lab. What uh, what what's the next step in your life? Well, I think when. Uh, Things started changing for me. Uh, I'd married two older women, not at the same time, by the way, but yeah. uh, the the one that I had my son by, and then I had a drinking partner and a using partner for a few years, and then uh, uh, got a divorce for the second time. And I'm I'm just starting to think when I when I hit thirty, I started really thinking, "Wow, what a loser I was." Mm-hmm. But I I had no way out. I mean, I couldn't think of anything that would help it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I kept wanting to do better. And uh, I uh, I was really interested in racing at the time, and I was trying to be a professional race car driver. And uh, I met this gal that was 18 years old. And uh, uh, we got married when she was 19. 
And uh, I was married to her for six weeks, and I got arrested for drunk driving. And uh, I woke up in jail. In, uh, so you were 30 and she was 18? I was 34. 34 and she was 18. Yeah. I thought the two older ones always expected too much out of me. If I married a younger one, I could teach her the shit she needed to know, and uh, I wouldn't hear wow. any of that uh, back talk. But that didn't work wow. either, by the way. Yeah. But uh, uh, it was a change. Uh, it really did make uh, a difference. Uh, I really wanted to be somebody better than I was for her. Mm-hmm. I really, you know, she. I, I thought she's cute. She deserves better than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know how to do it, but I wanted to be better. And uh, six weeks into our marriage, I went uh, on a job interview at, at a bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, Good uh, idea. Yeah, it was a good idea. Uh, but I got hired. Yeah. And I got hired as an, an apprentice animation cameraman. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy and I both drank a lot. And he left when he started feeling a little woozy. And I stayed there because I was feeling a little woozy mm-hmm. and uh, wanted to get woozier. And uh, I got arrested for drunk driving that night, and uh, uh, I was in jail all night, and my uh, my brand-new wife was calling my mother saying, where's Don? You didn't come home all night. And my mother said, you better get used to that. He's been doing that all his life. And uh, when I called her from jail, she said, I can't live like this. And I, I thought, what the hell's wrong with her? I've had six good weeks in a row, you know. <laughs> I was working on a personal best, and uh, and she um, she just went on and on and on. And I said, "Well, you know what? I'm going to quit drinking, and I'm going to quit using drugs, and I'm going to, you know, make something of myself." Mm-hmm. And little by little, from that day, I really did. I searched out some some help, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I I worked on myself, and mm-hmm. I uh, I got a lot of help, and. Um, I got, uh, and, and, but she was gone by that time. No, she wasn't gone. She uh, so in uh, that six weeks, because you were only married to her for six weeks, or was that a was that no an no no no? Uh, that was the first time I got in trouble. Uh, was the sixth week into the marriage? No, I was married to her for twenty. Uh, oh, twenty two okay. years. I'm sorry, it, it, I misunderstood. I thought you were saying you were only married to the eighteen year old girl for uh, for six weeks. I was married to her for six weeks before I'd gotten in any, any trouble. I, gotcha. I was, I thought I was doing very I see, well. I, I couldn't see why she was so right. angry. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. But um, uh, you know um, that job, uh, the animation job, lasted seven seven months. I didn't have a drink for the whole seven months. The guy laid me off, and he bought a bottle, and we drank it, and I got drunk again, and mm-hmm. I went home, and she yelled and screamed about that. And I said, hey, you know, a guy's entitled to... Anyway, you mm-hmm. know, the same old BS. And uh, I went on my first live-action job. I became interested in aerial photography, and I met a guy that uh, uh, built a mount that fit in helicopters, and he did all this really fun stuff. Uh, for movies, and he took me under his wing, and I learned the equipment, and I became his assistant, and um, thought that I would become an aerial cameraman, Mm -hmm. and it looked like something I could do, and it looked like something that, uh, you know, I've always steered clear of anything that you had to open a book and learn, Mm -hmm. and I always, uh, technical stuff left me uh, totally in the dark. I, I just, I'm not a very technical guy. 
But anyway, he showed me what I needed to know, and he sent me on my first job, and he gave me, uh, this is 45 years ago, and he sent me on my first job, and he gave me $100 per diem, which was a lot of money 45 years ago. And I got on the airplane, and it was first class to Philadelphia, and I was going to do my first job out of town that I was going to get paid for. And I was going to make more money in one day than I made in a week doing animation. I was wow. going to make more money per day. And we didn't work every day, but I sure. was going to, I had an opportunity like I'd never had in my life. And this guy really liked me and he really thought that I had what it took to do with the job. Now, this is something that I assumed that I was looking for all my life. Yeah. But when I got on that airplane and the gal says, uh, Mr. Morgan, would you care for a drink? I thought, well, I don't want to hurt the girl's feelings, so I got <laughs> drunk on the airplane. And you, But you had been sober for a little bit in, until then. Yeah, bits and pieces. I was sober for seven months mm -hmm. and uh, uh, got drunk that one time and then uh, got sober again and stayed sober for a couple months, a month or two, and got on the airplane and got drunk, Got took the $100 down to the bar that night and got just smashed, went upstairs and passed out. And my very first day in the movie business, I missed the call. And you don't do that. And wow. I woke up an hour after I was supposed to be downstairs. And I thought, well, this career's over. But being a loser like I was for all those years, it didn't seem to bother me. I thought, well, you know, it's just what Don Morgan does. He blows all these opportunities. And the phone rang. And they said, Don, we're sorry we're late. Uh, getting a hold of you, but it's raining outside and we won't be able to do the shot today. And uh, that was uh, my <laughs> my awakening. Wow. <clears throat> so and, did uh, you feel like the universe is throwing you a bone there, giving yeah. you a message and saying, well, we're going to give you one more chance? Yeah. Uh, you know, I always thought stuff was luck. Bad luck, good luck. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, a lucky day for me. You know, I didn't realize that maybe there was a... Uh, a higher calling watching out for me mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, right. uh, she, he, uh, whatever, uh, right. blows your skirt up. But, uh, today I realize that, uh, there's something besides me going on. But, mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, I went and did the job the next day and they were happy. And then I went to, to do another job, uh, in Miami and got drunk again and did the same thing over again. And I got by with it. And I walked to that airplane, and I, I knew the guy I was working for was a straight arrow. And he didn't, you know, uh, I'd been out with him a couple of times, and when he'd drink, he'd have a beer, and it would take the entire night to drink it. And uh, I just look at people like that and just think, what fucking planet are you from? What is that like to, yeah. to have one beer and to not want to keep going? And, oh, this yeah. guy was disgusting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a pig. Clean cut. Yeah. Good looking. Smart. Fuck him. Fuck him. <laughs> so, but, uh, but anyway, uh, I looked at that airplane and I thought, you know, I'm going to get on that airplane. I'm going to sit in a first class seat. I'm going to fly back to L.A. And I'm going to have to look this guy in the eye and tell him, yes, everything went fine and hope he doesn't find out. And he didn't. And I never drank again. That was November 5th, 1966. Wow. So I, I quit drugs. I quit drinking. And, uh, uh, but you still had to face you. 
Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Let's talk about that. So, so you take away, you know, what is the anesthetizing, all those feelings of low self-esteem and the pain of probably, I would imagine, of feeling abandoned and not good enough and the shame of having a learning disability, which you didn't even know at that time that you had a, a learning disability, did you? You just thought you were No, one smart of my stepdads what? helped me out with that. Uh, no okay. one else diagnosed me, but mm-hmm. one of my stepdads, his name was Ed Tun, mm-hmm. T-O-N. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was 6'6 six, six and weighed 265 pounds. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 5'8 now that I'm right. uh, uh, grown. And when I was little, uh, he diagnosed me as fucking stupid. And so that was my diagnosis. Wow. And... Uh, uh, I think those were probably accurate words. You know, he explained to me that I was. He told me that you I don't should, really think those were accurate words because you're not. You don't really think you're you're stupid. You just had a learning disability. Are you being self-deprecating? No, no, no. I when I was third when I was nine years old and my mom married him, uh-huh. and uh, she was married to him till I was about sixteen or seventeen. That was one of his. Uh, diagnosis right and at the time i did believe him right do i believe him today absolutely not okay I, I, uh you know i uh paul the one thing that i i uh, i know about me today is i know i'm not stupid i know that i i have a challenge with the spelling and that kind of stuff and uh, i hid that for years years and years even after i was an award-winning cinematographer. I still, every time I got paperwork from work, you know, when you go on a new movie, they'd give you a a packet to fill out and you had to show them, uh, you know, uh, some kind of birth certificate or or, uh, uh, something to prove Mm -hmm. that you were, uh, you know, born in the United States and all of the, the stuff that you had to bring in and prove and write. Uh, I would make an excuse that I had to bring it home I was in a hurry, and I'd get it back to him tomorrow, and I'd have somebody help me fill it out. Right. And I was so ashamed of that. Even though I was an award-winning cinematographer, I couldn't look anybody in the face and say, you know, I have learning disabilities. It's tough for me to fill this out. Right. I'll bring it back to you tomorrow. Is that a big deal? Probably not to anybody else, but it just killed me. Uh, it, again, it was an ego problem. Mm-hmm. Now, I had, uh, I've always had an ego but it worked in reverse. And then when I got to finally, you know, arrive at something uh, worthwhile in a career, then I had, I still had an ego going that I didn't want anybody to know this. And, um, a, a quick little side, uh, bar is I met another cinematographer, uh, that I got friendly with <clears throat> and we actually had the same agent. And uh, one time he and I and, and my agent and his agent, we went to lunch, and he started talking about his learning disabilities. And I thought, here's a guy that didn't have an alcohol problem, didn't have a drug problem, was equally as talented as I was, and was, we have actually won almost the same amount of awards. The guy is like like almost a, a duplicate of my mm-hmm. career. Right. The guy has done almost, it wasn't an aerial cameraman, but right. uh, 
doing movies and is, is doing he a guy that we would know that you would be comfortable saying <clears throat> saying his no name? i would i wouldn't want to reveal his name okay uh um you you might know it you might recognize it okay. but he's done really good stuff mm-hmm. and he even became a, a second unit director and, and uh and he's sitting there telling me about his learning disabilities and he said and this was just a, a mind op- uh, opening experience he said, I can't even fill out the paperwork when I go on a new job. Wow. And I said, I could kiss you right now. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I've been hiding that all my life, and you just opened it up. And, and, and since that day, I've been able to tell people that. I have trouble spelling. Uh, I'll bring this home, and I'll bring it back in the morning. Isn't it amazing? I harp on this point probably too much every every episode but when we open up and we talk about what scares us and what causes us pain the opposite happens for some reason our ego thinks it's going to be the end of us if people find this stuff out about us but in, in a lot of ways it's the beginning of a good life for us because that pressure is off and and we see that it's it doesn't define who we are uh you know i i was reading an article um on Stephen Hawking, and they said, what advice do you have for somebody who is maybe physically challenged or has some big obstacle to overcome? And he he said, find something to do that you're good at that your your, uh, setback doesn't interfere with, and just let go of the things that it does interfere with. Don't don't let that bother you. So, you know, just shift your focus to to what you have and away from what and what you don't. And it seems so like such a simple duh thing to say. Yet there's this part of us and maybe it's the ego that wants to be good at everything because we think that if we're bad at something, people aren't going to love us or they're not going to accept us. And yet we would extend extend that same courtesy to somebody else. I would never say to somebody, I, I can't be your friend because you have a learning disability. You would never do that to somebody. But for some reason, you thought people would do that to you. Is that the ego? What, what, do, you, what do you think that is? Oh, I, I'm sure it's the ego. Uh, the, uh, the thing that you were hitting on, uh, whenever something, whenever an idea rolls around in my head and I don't let it out, Mm-hmm. in the air for someone else to hear it's usually a bad idea right and and uh it stays there and festers and it gets it was a bad idea to start with and i can make it really a really bad idea right uh the more i think about it yeah and uh, i think you and i uh on the path that we've we've uh been on we've we've learned uh the value of having valued friends that we run stuff by. Yeah. Uh, there's stuff uh, that I just, I'm, I'm just totally, totally convinced that this is the way I should go. And even while I'm telling you about it, I start realizing the minute it comes out, out of the head mouth, and out the mouth, how stupid I start it thinking, why was I thinking? You know, and when you spend from the time you're a child till you're 34 years old, in my case, Living that way, you've got one bad idea after another bumping into each other, yeah. and you've got a pretty polluted head, yeah. you know, or brain. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think that's, 
you know, the, uh, when, when, uh, I love, like you, you brought out earlier, I love Eckhart Tolle's, uh, I read all his stuff. And um, I, I got to be honest, I found the middle of a power now to become really kind of uh, repetitive and a little too new agey. And I almost gave up on it. And then it picks up towards the end. And and he gives some really practical advice, especially about relationships. Um, and then his second book, I think, is just great from start to finish, which is uh, called A New Earth. And I know I talk about it a lot on this podcast, but it it it, it changed that book changed uh, my life in a lot of the way uh, I, I look at myself and, and other people. And uh, I highly recommend it. But let's get back to, uh, to talking about your uh, – so you're a budding c- cinematographer uh, at, at this point. Give me some snapshots of, uh, of your career. Um, people always love to hear behind-the-scenes stuff of, of actors and directors and that kind of stuff. Can you, can you lay any of that on us? Well, as, uh, as luck or life or – whatever you want to call it, would uh, have it. My past, not being afraid to be an aerial cameraman and riding rodeos and race cars, I've, I've always had a, uh, 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 an urge for the, uh, the excitement. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was 73 years old, mm-hmm. I hang glided or whatever you call it with a, with a, a person taking you down. I was in New Zealand and we jumped off the highest mountain and we flew down and everyone said, you did that at 70 something. And I, uh, I'm going to be 80 in February and I'm going to, uh, skydive with a, uh, with, with a partner one time. Are you shitting me? No, I, I, I just, I, I love people that don't let age stand in the way yeah. of something they want to do. And I wanted to skydive all of my life, and I'm saving it for my, my 80th year. Wow. And I'm not going to become a skydiver. I'm going to do it one time. Right. Shit I'm going to shit my pants. And be done with it. Yes. Uh, and and, uh, and, and uh, just enjoy it. Yeah. And say, God, I see now why I haven't done it for 80 <laughs> years, you know, or whatever the awful. hell it is. But I loved the, the flying down, you know... Uh, were you shooting film with No, no, New no, no. We just, just a bunch just of us were on a picture there. I was doing a movie in, in New Zealand, and we went to Queenstown, which is where I think God vacations. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. And uh, everyone was going to go, and I said, yeah, I'll go. And we, we went, and um, I don't know what you call it, but you, I, I even have a video of it but or uh, pictures of it, mm-hmm. but you, you run – and you've got you've got a guy that controls it. Right. You run and jump off this cliff, you know. And so there's a lot of faith there, you know. Yeah. You sure you've done this before, pal? Right. Yeah, I've had. And he takes pictures of you, and uh, he's got a, a a camera on a, a long pole, and he shoots, you know, and you see the town below, and pretty exciting. Shoots the horror on your face. But uh, I forget why. I was asking you to give me some snapshots of well, the uh, of excitement your that I've always craved yeah. and still crave at seventy nine years old. I like, I like doing exciting things. I can see your when you get hired to do a job, which you're semi retired now, but you still get work. 
the way your face lights up when a, a job comes in uh, just to me makes it so obvious that you truly enjoy what you do, that you love. And and I've actually been on a set with you and seen you tweak lights and you're a, a perfectionist with attention to detail and really, really take pride in, in, in what you do. And it's it's so amazing when people find something that they connect to. It doesn't always happen when you're eight years old or 20 years old. Sometimes it doesn't happen until you're 45 years old. But when you do, it's uh, it's so amazing because it doesn't feel like work anymore. Do, it, 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 am I wrong in describing no, uh, no. cinematography to you no, that I, way? You know, I never thought that I could do the lighting and, and do this stuff on a soundstage and do the stuff that cameramen do, you know, that right. a, dir- a director of photography yes. does. Yeah, uh, cinematographer, director of photography, they're both the same thing. They are the and, same, yeah. And you're not the the person operating the camera, but you're more the person making sure that everything is lit so it looks right for the camera. Well, what I do now mainly, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean you never operate a camera. You can, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, our, our staff, is usually uh, a director of photography, which works hand-in-hand with the director. The director tells me what he wants, and sometimes they ask how to get it done, Mm -hmm. or some some of them don't want to hear a damn thing from me. They want to tell me er every move to make. And, uh, What's that like when 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 they do that? Does it the wind kind of go out of your sails and you think, oh, fuck, this is going to be a long shoot. This isn't going to be as fun. No, you know what? I, I've always found a way to uh, get a few zingers in. Mm-hmm. Um, they usually hire me because they like the look that I've been able to give. So mm-hmm. the lighting is something that most of them don't get involved with. Uh, you know, I'm I'm able, you know, um, speaking of that, uh, people wonder how I ever got to be a lighting cameraman, how I could do that without any training. Uh what I did was I bought, and I have the book right here, I bought a book of 100 famous paintings when I was doing aerial work. And I thought, someday I want to be able to branch out and do some stuff, you know, besides aerials. Mm-hmm. And Because uh, I was like the stunt guy. If you needed a guy to stand up in the seat, the front seat of a biplane with a harness on and film the guy flying the airplane, you got me. So, you so the wanted, daredevil paid off a little bit. Yeah. If you wanted, I mean, uh, uh, the old series Streets of San Francisco that was on years ago mm-hmm. uh, with Michael Douglas when he was Carl very Malden. young. Sure. Yeah. Well, I worked on that, and they used to send me out to grab stuff. And they knew that whether I had the equipment or not, I'd come back with it. One time they wanted, you know, the red light that goes long, long, long in the top mm-hmm. of a car. Right. Uh, They'd snap that on, and they'd go racing through the wet streets. We had no way of getting that shot, and the director wanted it. I took a couple of belts and put it around me, and and, uh, they had bumpers on the car in those days. And I put the end of the belt uh, and slammed the hood, and I'm riding around wet streets, hand-holding the camera. I mean, you you could get killed in a heartbeat. (laughs) And I've, I've stood on the skid gear filming people inside of helicopters. I've laid boards across underneath and uh, you know i'd do any stupid thing that would i rode a bucking horse once because someone said morgan rode a you know and i i i i worked on a movie uh, um 
called Wild Rovers, and they wanted a shot of of um, uh, Ryan O'Neill and William Holden. They had roped a horse, and they wanted a shot over the horse's head with it rearing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the helicopter pilot said, Don will get it for you. He can do anything, you know, and I just love that. That, you know, I'd never yeah. been told, and no one ever said Don can do anything. <laughs> yeah, they used to say Don can't do anything. Yeah, Don cannot do anything. Uh, and uh, the horse fell over backwards, and, and I have it on film, by the way. Uh, the horse fell over backwards in the snow with me on it. But people would go, this fucker is crazy, but he'll get you anything. And so I wanted to, uh, uh, after doing that for a few years, I, I thought it would I would love to be able to, you know, I started shooting commercials. And one time a guy said, do you know how to light stuff? And I said, no. He said, well, all I need is a bunch of kids screaming that uh, with balloons and a lot of color. All I need is uh, however you'd light it. I just need it for cutaways from animation on television. It would be an animated show, and then they'd cut to the kids screaming and laughing. And I brought a, uh, a lighting gaffer. And he lit it, and I thought, God, this is fun. I'd like to learn how to light. So mm-hmm. I bought a book of 100 famous paintings uh, with Rembrandt and, you know, the mm-hmm. Dutch masters and right. blah, blah, blah. And I started studying that book. Uh, nothing to read, just looking at it. Right. And I started thinking I could do that. And even before I knew the names of the lights, I started lighting stuff, and guys would go, God, where did this come from? We didn't know you knew how to do this. And I didn't know how, I didn't know yeah. how to do it either. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it's been a real gift. And, and uh, you know, what's, what strikes me listening to you to tell your story is so oftentimes when we don't see something linked directly to something else in our life, we think that first thing was a waste of time. And I've heard you say this before, um, that – a lot of times the payoff for something doesn't happen until years later and you're you know you being a rodeo rider and all this these adrenaline things a race car driver helped you be comfortable standing on a helicopter getting those shots helped you be that guy yet at the time you thought oh fuck i've i've failed another thing and one of the biggest gifts in life that 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 I've discovered is to not judge where I am at a specific moment in my life because it might be leading me somewhere beautiful, but right now it just appears ugly. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I am totally convinced if there's nothing else I've learned in my 79 years is that anything that happens to me today, and I don't want to paint a picture that uh, uh, that this immediately comes to my head all the time because it doesn't, but most of the time, no matter what happens to me that I feel is a negative, I, I go, Don, if you just wait, you'll see the positive twist on it. Uh, one of the examples that I use is that marriage to that young girl that I married. We were married for 22 years, mm-hmm. and we didn't have the best of marriages, but we were both learning. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't know how to do it, and I didn't know how to. She came up from a pretty tough childhood, and uh, you know, she. 
I bought her all the toys. I became I became a very successful guy. I had a Porsche. She had a Mercedes. I had a van with television in it and the, the great sound system and the bed and the blah, blah, blah. And we had a place in Mammoth, and we lived in Bell Canyon, the Guardgate community, and blah, blah. You know, it just went on and on and on. I owned a lot of my own camera equipment. And, I mean, I went from a guy that couldn't earn a living to, to living a really nice life. Mm. But something's still missing at home. I was very happy with my, my work. I was uh, recognized. I was uh, doing good stuff. Uh, traveled all over the world. I mean, I've been all over the world and, it, it, you know, just places that I could have never seen any, any other. I mean, when people say, why do you like your job so much? Why wouldn't I? I've done everything that I could dream of through my work. So I've been very fortunate in that. And I am not my work. I have to be happy when I'm not working. Right. And uh, that's the biggest lesson I've had to learn, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was, uh, we were married for, uh, for all those years. And uh, uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is when we got a divorce, it took a little turn. I was shooting commercials and directing commercials at the time. Mm -hmm. I kind of got out of the long form for a little while and uh, was making more money than I'd ever made in my life directing and shooting commercials. And then in the late 80s, they had a big switchover where they used a lot of music video directors and they, the whole look of, of the of, uh, commercials changed, shaky cameras and you know a whole different style. When I was doing it, they loved motion picture cameramen that had done, you know, I just finished, when I started doing commercials, I had just come off of Starman, which was a very successful movie, and people liked it. Which I would like you to talk about at some point. Yeah, but, um, you know, uh, they, they, I could get jobs just one right after another because of some of the stuff that I'd done. Mm -hmm. when, when the music video guys came in, they didn't want that. Mm -hmm. They wanted what, you know, and they brought their young cameraman with them, so it changed. So the time that my uh, my w then wife and I split up, we had four children. Mm -hmm. And and they and what, all... And what led to the splitting up? Or is it kind of hard to say? I, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you her side of it. Okay. I just think that uh, uh, my take on her side of it was that she had no experiences. She never was able to sit in a bar and meet people or go out and run around or, or have a bunch of, you know, I came along and, uh, and we got married and, uh, and I'm gone all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I was gone a lot, uh, by design. I did not like being at home. We did right. not get along very well. We had beautiful kids and a beautiful life and we, you know, it still was chaos because we didn't know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, she, I, I, you know, I'm not sure. And you probably also didn't become a great guy overnight just because you quit drinking. Oh, no, definitely not. I was, I was a hardcore guy to live with for a long time. Uh, and unfortunately, just about the time I softened and started being the, the, uh, the guy that I think she would have liked to had in the beginning, uh, it was over. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I had these four beautiful kids and I had a, a child by an earlier marriage, my, my oldest son. And, uh, you know, another thing that's kind of a, uh, interesting thing is 
the son, the oldest son that I had by my first wife, the, uh, my older wife, uh, he became me. Mm-hmm. He had learning disabilities. Uh, uh, I guess it was handed down from me. Mm-hmm. And he ended up uh, uh, doing a little prison time. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he got help later on in life. And uh, he's a very successful uh, contractor. And the house we're sitting in, he built, mm-hmm. tore this place apart and built. Um, he's, uh, he's just a wonderful guy now. Yeah. But he had to go through everything I did. And I, I kind of look at it like, gee, maybe I was his blueprint because I was doing all that stuff when he was growing up. That's, you know, I think right. I became his hero, the race car driver, the this, the that. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, dad doesn't take any shit from anybody right. kind of guy. And, uh, uh, you know, I was a terrible father, terrible father. Uh, you know, I used to get him to light cigarettes for me because I thought it was real cute, you know, and just <laughs> crap that I just can't even believe I would be involved with and do. Like, like, what are, what are some other, some other? Well, I would take him to bars and stuff and I'd be drinking and, and, and uh, I thought it was cute having my little kid with me, you know, and he'd be sitting there watching all of us drink and, uh, you know, just exposing him to stuff. That when it was exposed, you know, I had an uncle that used to do that with me when I was a kid. And I used to think, wow, you know, sitting at a bar all day long and telling stories. And, mm-hmm. you know, it looked romantic. And uh, I'm sure that's the way it looked to my, my son. But then when I, when, when I got married to the younger gal and we, had, um, we adopted the first two kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're just, they're the joy of my life. And I... Can't even. Uh, I have to say it out loud once in a while to to remind myself that they are adopted because it's it's you know they've just been my kids, right? And uh, uh, I then we had two boys, and those kids have all their college grad. I have one kid. <laughs> I'm gonna have to check his DNA, but he uh, graduated from Harvard. And uh, who would have ever imagined that you? would have a child this this was a a, a biological uh, child of yours from your sperm that went to harvard i just want to double check this he's my son he is your son yeah that's amazing yeah uh and the other the other kid has uh graduated and done very well too but this other one uh, you know he's just really mind-boggling but what, what do you think the, let me just pause for a second what do you think you would have said if at the the height of your shame about your learning disability and you're not knowing where your career is headed or if you're ever going to be successful at anything if somebody would come up to you and say you're going to be nominated for nine emmy awards and you're going to have a son that's going to go to harvard what do you what do you think you would have I would have said, could I have a drag off of that? <laughs> <laughs> you are high. Yeah. But uh, I don't even know where we were. But uh, uh, oh, the the point that I was making about this marriage. Yeah. Uh, with all the toys and all the wonderful stuff. When we got a divorce, the work stopped. That mm-hmm. the commercials went to a, a whole different breed right. of people. The directors that I worked with couldn't get a job uh they were they were having their problems and uh the stuff that i used to direct i wasn't getting those jobs mm-hmm. 
So it changed. So the minute I walked out of that house in Bell Canyon and drove my little Porsche down out of there and thought, yeah, I'll just go, you know, I moved into this house that we're sitting in and it was a rental house Mm -hmm. and it was just beat up like hell, you know, and, and I tore it all apart and was going to make a bachelor's pad out of it. And then I ran out of money and I, uh, I was supposed to pay in a monumental amount of alimony and child support. Because it was based on what you were making yeah. when you got divorced. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. And I kept selling stuff. I had that beautiful place in Mammoth I had to get rid of. And I got rid of my camera gear. And I, and I got all the, all the uh, you know, everybody I would tell that to, they'd go, oh, Don, that's so. You had to sell your yeah. Porsche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. You sure got screwed, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I lived with that for a long time. Yeah. I had a guy that's a friend of mine sitting right there in that chair over there. He said, well, she got all the money and you got all the smiles because you know I'm in a happy marriage now. I've yeah. been with Patty for 20. We just celebrated 19 years um, last Monday mm-hmm. of marriage, and we've been together for 22 years. But you couldn't see that when you were getting divorced and all no, that. No, and I was also worried about, oh, the money, the property, the mm-hmm. prestige mm-hmm. leaving me. I didn't realize that my kids, they go to her for money and me for advice. <laughs> it's funny. But I look at it now and I see, why did I put myself through all that torture about you're losing this, you're losing it? All my kids lived a good life because I made a, uh, quite a bit of money and she got it and shared it with them. Yeah. They all got to go to good schools and do it. You know, they right. went through private schools all the way through and they, they're, they're all four of them are living great lives. And, uh, whenever they need any money, they run to mom. Yeah. And, uh, uh the point is that anything negative that happens to you, if you're willing to wait, to see the other side, it usually, in my case, a hundred percent, it usually turns around to being the thing that should happen. Yeah. So that was one example of going from being worth well over a million dollars to being worth nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm talking about a million dollars when a million dollars was, a, you know, the home that I left was sold for a million thirty-five. And, and this was in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And this was in the late 80s? That it- she sold it in the 90s. Uh, oh, okay. or, or actually, the yeah, the uh, end of the 90s. Uh, but uh, So, yeah, but a lot of money. But everything, yeah. I, everything I had became worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But I never got any, anything out of it. Right. Uh, I mean, money out right. of it. But you're, but you're <clears throat> somebody who, by that time, had begun to realize that money alone isn't going to make you happy. Uh, and it sounds like a cliche, but it, my experience has been true. You know, when I was at the height of my earning power, making three times what I'm making right now, that's also when I would think about putting a gun in my mouth once, once an hour, cause I, I couldn't quit drinking and I was depressed all the time. Uh, so money in and of itself is, uh, it's it's pretty rare that that alone can, can make you happy. I don't know anybody, uh, I don't know any rich person who is happy that doesn't have some type of generosity, something outside of their business that feeds them, something outside of earning money. Well, uh, 
I know I know a guy that turned his life around, went from, I met him on the beach. I was shooting a movie, and this is a true story. He was walking down the street, and he was just starting to turn his life around. And he was watching us shoot, and I, I looked over, and I said, you want a cup of coffee? I was standing by the craft service table, you know, with the coffee and donuts, and he said, yeah. And uh, he had a cup of coffee, and I think I invited him to have a donut or whatever. And I met that guy several years later, and he said, do you remember me? And this guy became a multimillionaire. I just talked to him yesterday, and uh, he's going to Istanbul for vacation, and uh, he's running around, you know, all over. Mm-hmm. He's very wealthy. And he was dirt on the street. Mm-hmm. And and this guy is happy yeah, because he is a giver. He's exactly what you pointed out. He, he gives of himself. He helps people. Uh, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. And that kind of wealth in both areas works. Yeah. But... If you don't have the wealth of your life, if you don't have a, 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 a friends and people you can share your your pain and your happiness with and your your fears and uh, uh, yeah, if you don't have that, it just stays bottled up inside you and just and eats at you. You know, it, it it occurred to me the other day that if I keep it inside, it eats me, and if I let it out, it feeds me. And it sounds corny, but it's it's such a conundrum, but it really is. I don't know. Is that a conundrum? Isn't that what you keep on to keep from getting venereal diseases? <laughs> Conundrums. <laughs> before we uh, before we wrap up, uh, I just want you to talk a little bit about the movie Starman, which uh, starred Jeff Bridges and was directed by John Carpenter. And I, I think one of the one of the best movies ever made. It just. Uh, I remember seeing it, and and there's a scene in it where Jeff Bridges um, sees a deer that has been shot, and it's isn't it strapped to the roof of a of a car? And Jeff Bridges is a guy that comes from another planet, and he's basically trying to navigate his way in our world, and he has these extraordinary powers but it's it's done, shot in such a realistic way and he's such a great actor that you really believe he is this guy um and that that scene where he goes over and he touches the deer and the deer wakes comes back to life and he unropes it and the deer walks away and i just remember just bawling seeing that what what memories do you have of working on uh, on starman Starman, Starman was uh, uh, a really beautiful picture to work on. I mean, it was it was um, uh, John John Carpenter at his best. I think. Yeah. Uh, I d- I did three movies with John Carpenter. I did uh, Elvis, that Kurt Russell mm-hmm. did, and uh, uh, by the way, I I had the opportunity to work with the real Elvis, and uh, that that was an exciting time in my life. Too. What what happened there? I was clicking slates, and I was doing. Uh, that came to do some aerial stuff on the movie that he. What do you was mean with, you were clicking slates? Uh, slate boy, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, so you weren't a cinematographer yet. No, no, just... no. I I came up with the helicopter as an assistant, mm-hmm. and another cameraman was shooting some aerial 
stuff and they asked me to stay and work because they needed another another assistant and uh, it was a great opportunity i actually sat in a car while uh, elvis was kidding around like he did you know mm-hmm. he he did all that stuff with the guys that he always said but uh, it was it was quite exciting to uh, to meet him and uh, work with him and i got a picture on the wall i'll show you in there of of he and i which was uh, pretty exciting yeah uh my connection anyway we we did a movie about elvis after he died mm. uh that john carpenter directed which uh what's it, what what kind of a guy is a john carpenter to work with he seems like he's uh, pretty intense he is he's he's uh he's uh uh john is a guy that um uh, i loved working with him i mm. uh i'm sorry that we aren't still working together mm. he, he he was an exciting guy for me and uh he he taught me some things that I wasn't used to. I mean, John, uh, uh, you know, when I was raised in, the way I was raised up in the business was when when you did a dolly shot and a zoom shot at the same time, everything had to stop at the same time. There was no, one didn't stop and you keep going. Everything had to stop and be really beautiful. And re- But uh, John was a little looser. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, you know, when, when we do steady cam shots, which uh, you know what that is, uh, the camera rigged the, the, on the a harness. Yeah. So it looks like it's floating, but it's yeah. actually a guy with this 50-pound yeah. contraption. Yeah, but it, it has uh, zero weight because right. it's all on your body, and you can do shots that look like they're dolly shots, except you can go everywhere with it, up and down steps and whatever. Right. And John loved that, And but I would... I'd say, I need another one. He'd say, why? And I'd say, well, you know, he didn't stop when the dialogue stopped. He said, why does that have to happen? And he just, you know, just did stuff Looked a little at different way. Anew. Was the movie that kind of launched his career, was it Halloween, or had he had done anything before that? Well, he did Halloween. Uh, he did a a, a, a film um, that I cannot recall the name of when he was still in film school, okay. I believe. But Halloween made him. Halloween made him. Okay. And then he also, uh, a little uh, <laughs> funny thing, I'm married to, to you know, Patty, who mm-hmm. I think you've met. Mm-hmm. Uh, her son was, uh, John did a movie called The Fog. Mm-hmm. And her son was Adrian Barbeau's son in the movie. Mm-hmm. So we not only I not only had a connection with with Carpenter, but when I met Patty and her son, mm-hmm. uh, they had a connection with because uh, wow. uh, uh, he worked on a couple of films that John was right. involved right. with. But one, he was uh, you know uh, fifth on the marquee or whatever right. you know. He, he, but he was Adrian Barbo's son. Right. So, um, uh, but. Yeah, John. John was tough. He knew what he wanted, and uh, 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 I think uh, I think we worked really well together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't I don't know the reason. You know, in the the movie business, there there doesn't have to be a reason why people move on no. to other people. Very it, ra- very rarely do you even find out. Uh, you know, as a stand up comedian, a lot of times you'll be up for a a, a show. Uh, and they say, oh, we'll let you know by Tuesday. A lot of times they don't even, they only call the person that got something. They don't let you know. And so you <laughs> you hang around for weeks, you know, waiting for that phone call. And after a couple of years of having somebody do that to you, you just, 
literally when you're done with the audition, you just leave it behind you and you right. and you move on with your life because it's just well, uh, you know, the minute I the minute I uh, I quit working with John, I did I did uh, I did Elvis, which was a television movie. Mm-hmm. And that was my first nomination for mm. for an Emmy, by the way. Yeah. What, what, what were your five wins for? Uh, the first one was uh, Murder in Mississippi, which was, um, you remember the movie uh, Missis, uh, uh, Mississippi Burning uh-huh. or whatever it was yeah. called? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was... With Willem ab- Dafoe and... Uh, that was after the boys got killed mm-hmm. and my movie was before and during when the when the kids came down from new york oh, and, okay. and, and uh, got involved with them and mm-hmm. the, and uh, schwerner goodman and cheney right were the, the yeah, three kids yeah, what, yeah. so uh, was it about them before yeah, and 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 the oh, that's the, an inter- interesting premise yeah and um uh, uh anyway i won an emmy and an asc award and was nominated for a cable ace that they had in mm-hmm. those days. So it was a very successful movie for me. Then, uh, let's see, uh, I also won an Emmy for uh, Geronimo, which mm-hmm. was a uh, uh, the television version of mm-hmm. Geronimo. I won another Emmy for Miss Evers' Boys, which mm-hmm. was um, Alfrey Woodard. Mm-hmm. Um, great, great script. Um I won another Emmy for um, Out of the Ashes, which was a story about Gisela Pearl, a Jewish woman doctor mm-hmm. that went to Auschwitz, and she was involved with um, uh, abortions in Auschwitz to save women's lives. They'd get pregnant by guards or even mm. some of the prisoners. Wow. And when they'd, when they'd get pregnant, mm-hmm. they'd kill the baby and kill the woman because she couldn't work, so... Uh, this woman kept doing abortions and uh, when she got out uh, when she moved to America and wanted her license to to practice medicine they didn't want to give it to her because she had they heard that she did all these abortions and she had to explain to them that she was saving their lives so they could come out of there and have children later right and that uh, no matter what it looked like to us she was doing the right thing, yeah. which, of course, she was. Right. And uh, it was an interesting, interesting story. And, and ironically, it was a romantic comedy, which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and is th- was there one more or was that, was that the five? Uh, I think that was four. I don't know. It's all right. I'm going blank. I don't know whether I uh, I, w- I had nine nine nominations, so sometimes I get confused with John. I don't give a shit about the losses. Uh, I only care about the winners. That's that's what I take out of this whole conversation we had. Is you if you're going to be a loser, and- nobody gives a shit. But if you want to be a winner, you get get to be on a podcast that a couple people listen to. I've got an idea. Why don't we go over to my trophy case here and we can go through all of them on the air, you know, and we can discuss each one in, in, in length. Uh, there's also some stuff in there from a Kodak, which was nice. Anyway, enough about my awards. <laughs> Have you seen any of the movies I've shot? But, uh, uh, you know, again, everything that's happened negative, even in the film business, negative in the film business, right. you like oh, that? Oh, I got it. Turns positive. Oh, I got it. Negative, yeah. positive, yeah, yeah. get it? Uh, but 
when 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 John and I quit working together, I I thought, oh man, you know that, that, that I hate this. And then I went to work for um, uh, Robert Zemeckis. Oh, really? I did Robert. Oh, Z- you did used cars, which is such an underrated comedy. Such a great movie. Well, I did. Uh, I did. I want to hold your hand, which was uh, right. Beatlemania kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I did used cars. Loved used cars. Actually, uh, it's the other way around. I did. I worked for him first, and then when he went on and moved on, then I went with John. Mm-hmm. But every time you lose something, something else comes yes. up. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a great note uh, and a, and a great. Uh, idea to 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 end this on you're you're one of my favorite people in the world you're uh you're somebody i look to for uh, for advice and guidance in a lot of ways uh you're the you're the dad that i never had and kind of always wished my dad could uh, could have been and uh i i appreciate your friendship and uh and i learned so much from you and i want to thank you for taking time out of your uh out of your life to uh, to do my podcast you know, if you are lucky enough to even have one Don Morgan in your life, you uh, you are blessed. Just love him. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Eyeball Scream. And uh, she asks, would it unsettle you if I told you I feel overprotective of you with everyone you interview? My hypervigilance from CPTSD spills out in weird places, and I worry involuntarily about guests being mean to you. If anyone is mean to you, Paul, I will psychically punch them in the theoretical face, figuratively, from my chair. That's actually kind of touching. I love when I was going through the worst of 
processing the childhood trauma that, that I experienced, um, I got so many beautiful emails from people, especially moms, who were like, what happened to you was not okay. And, you know, <laughs> one lady say, I want to kick your mom in the cunt. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to do that. But the fierceness of her thought felt so good. It felt so good. I mean, people who have been taken advantage of by caregivers, it it can really affect your trust in other people and a feeling, leave you with that feeling that, that you are just on your own and nobody's got your back. This is from the love survey filled out by Danger, and uh, they write, I love when my dog snakes out of the covers in the morning, smelling like Fritos and searching for a cuddle. That is such an awesome one. And why is it that dogs' feet smell like Fritos? I don't know. I don't know. This is from the racism survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bad Juju. And she writes, anti-Semitism is everywhere, really. I always knew we were different, and I was always ashamed of how we looked and spoke. With some people whose politics dictate that they hate Israel and therefore Jews, I always feel the hatred from their eyes. I actually live in Israel now. When a Palestinian or Israeli Arab that is against Israel, and in parentheses, because there are many that are okay with, are okay with most of it, uh, interacts with me at work as an MRI tech are so blatant with their disdain. In the States, when I worked in a Jewish hospital with mostly non-Jewish employees, my co-workers would send me Holocaust jokes because that was all they knew about Jews. I actually stood up for myself and told her to stop sending me those that they're not funny anymore. How do you remember, do you remember how you felt when it happened? Hot in the chest and face. Shame, anger, sadness. How do you feel about it now? I know that everyone has a different version of truth. The way we grew up and what we were taught has a huge effect on us. So when people who are in situations where they only get one version of information, uh, like where I was raised, by the way, I feel empathy. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? We are taught in Jewish school that no matter what we do, Jews will always be hated. It was a punishment for something, I think. At least that's what they taught us. They also told us dinosaurs aren't real and it's all a hoax. So I became an atheist Jew because even if you don't believe in any of it, you are still considered a Jew. You can't say I was raised Jewish or I used to be Jewish. You either are or you aren't. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Rosie. And Rosie writes, In the past, you've spoken honestly about feeling you did not treat some women you had sexual encounters with with the same respect you would have done if you knew them today or something along those lines. Apologies. I can't remember your exact words. Have you spoken with those women, women and made amends if you felt that was necessary? Yes. Oh, and, and then, uh, sorry if this is too personal, and I understand if you don't read it out loud. Um, no, I think it's really important um, to to be honest uh, about 
you know, our learning curve and mistakes we've made and, you know, have we taken anything out of it? Have we tried to grow? Have we, have we apologized? And yes, where possible, I have made, uh, made apologies. And, um, it's hard, you know, we can't change our, our past, obviously. Um, but, you know, we can ask ourselves, is there any thing positive that can be taken out of this? You know, can I try to be an advocate or just not be the same person that, that I was? Um, so I hope that, I hope that answers your question. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself on edge in LA. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, and then parentheses, uh, things started to change once I got into junior high. She's never been sexually abused. Um, uh, but she adds, hit puberty very early and was always a curious and horny child. Father was abusive, not sexually, but I was always looking for male attention. Became sexually active about 11 years old, lost my virginity at 13. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused, uh, was spanked with hands, wooden spoons, and belts both at home and at the, quote, cult evangelical church slash school till about fourth grade. Lived in constant fear of my father or mother yelling at me at each other or my younger brother. Father was alcoholic. Mother struggled with depression. They, slash we, turned our lives around over many years of work, but the trauma from the past was never really acknowledged. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, exclamation point. My parents have made a complete 180 with lots of work and their, quote, faith. I'm really close with them, but there are sides of my life I cannot and do not share with them. There's been some acknowledgement of the past abuse. I do not blame them. They were fucked up. All I wanted is a true and sincere acknowledgement that things were as fucked up as I remember. We've come part way, which is awesome. Darkest thoughts. At this moment, as my roommate is recovering from surgery, I wish she would just fuck off and die. I'm glad she's in pain because how hurtful she is to me and others. Darkest secrets. I stole and replaced my roommate's pain meds with over-the-counter pills a long time ago. Now she's using them as she's recovering some sur from surgery and just thinks they are old and don't work. She'll get her refill tomorrow and will never figure out what I did. I feel sick with guilt, but at the same time, I'm glad to see her suffering because she hurts those around her and has no clue. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Uh, using a man for oral sex on me only. Uh, Mon F gangbangs. I'm not sure what Mon F means. Uh, incest fantasies. Younger girl, older man. Forced. Prostitution. I don't feel bad for my sexual fantasies. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mom, Dad, I'm a pro-dominatrix slash sex worker. Lisa? I took all your pain meds and didn't tell you. What, if anything, do you wish for? No more anxiety and depression and a boyfriend. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, it was sort of helpful, but never got very deep. How do you feel after writing these things down? 
Sad. Sad that I've done really bad things. Sad that I can't live an authentic life. You can live an authentic life. You know, that's the good news. The bad news is, is it takes work. It takes work and it, and it takes a committed effort, but it's doable and it's not overwhelming and it's fucking worth it. It's fucking worth it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? We are not alone. Thank you so much for your honesty. You know, that to me is a great example of, of what I hoped to hear when I created the surveys is, is not specifically what you wrote, you know, people being hurt or, but the honesty in there. Because most people probably on the microphone would not share that stuff. And I think the surveys, because they're filled out anonymously, um, can really give us honest glimpses into people's inner lives. If you never fill out a survey, go to the website metalpod.com. There's a bunch of surveys you can fill out, and it's a really, really great way to support the show. This is from the love survey filled out by MSL, and they write, I love when my cat mews. I think, I think they meant meow as, as she's hopping up onto my bed because it means she wants me to hold her. I love when baristas call me babe. I love when I ask someone for a favor and they happily say yes. I don't feel like they're going to hold it against me later. I love trying a new food and really enjoying it and getting to add it to the list of suggestions when my when I ask myself what I should do for dinner tonight. That is such a great one. The first time I tried sushi, which was, you know, 500 years ago, it just blew my mind. You know, it, such a huge number of tastes that I'd never had before. And here's how long ago it was. They had ashtrays in the restaurant. And I was I was asking the uh, waiter what everything was. I was like, what is this green stuff? He's like, that's wasabi. It's a, you know, a horseradish based paste that, you know, gives the food a little bit of kick and what's this stuff over here that's ginger but it's been pickled and it and it helps cleanse your palate and, and I said and what's this thing he said that's an ashtray uh, I love that feeling after I've eaten a full meal of cheesy salty and or greasy food and washing it down with an ice cold soda oh that is a great one I love the smoothness of the air on warm summer nights I love being able to smell the beginning of winter. Oh, man, these are so good. I love the smell of machine oil and dry dirt because it takes me back to my late grandparents' farm that as a young child I would limitlessly explore. I love my father for always being in my court and never giving me any reason to doubt that he just wants me to be happy. And I love living alone with absolutely no one to judge how long I put off chores chores. Those are fucking great. Thank you for those. This is from the uh, sexual abuse or uh, violation of young male by older female. 
uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself New, G-N-U. Um, he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, identifies as straightish. He's in his 30s. Um, he writes that he's never been sexually abused. Um, I think that is definitely up for uh, debate. And he writes, I was 16, she was 22. Legally, I couldn't consent, but you couldn't tell me that then. We stayed together for four years in my first relationship. You know, the thing that I think you should always ask yourself is if the genders were reversed, would it be an appropriate relationship? And I think the answer is a resounding no. When I was 24, I started dating a 32-year-old woman for a period of three years. Good memories. When I was 30, I dated a 49-year-old woman briefly on and off for a month or two. Uh, if something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Eh, I was mostly an adult, so it feels pretty okay. A friend of mine has told me to consider that my first girlfriend did damage by being too clingy and maintaining outsized power and influence over my impressionable youth. He's not wrong entirely, but I've been through worse. Heh. Not a ringing endorsement of psychological stability, but looking back, I really don't see that much wrong with it. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Well, well-wishing, I guess. Fondness. I feel like these questions are looking for stories of abuse, but it was not my experience. Love to those who have been abused. Do you feel any damage was done? It was fairly innocent. As a 22-year-old college graduate, she shouldn't have been hanging out with high school students, but our social circle spanned the age difference with us on the extreme ends, so it wasn't too predatory. Uh, if you've ever experienced one of the above situations and it is only a fantasy, how does that fantasy make you feel? I fantasize about younger women and have been with a few. It seems excessive and gauche at times when I find myself fixating on a number instead of qualities and characteristics. I wor worry about the predatory aspects of it. I don't want to be with a partner who is only enamored with the number of times I've been around the sun as opposed to how I've lived during that time. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Oh, and uh, the question, if uh, laws were broken, did anyone find out? Both our parents knew and were sufficiently awkward about it, never bringing up the age difference directly, but certainly aware of it. It was only the first year we were together that broke statutory consent laws, but it was always weird around my folks. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope, by the way, when I read stuff and I'm like, "Oh, that was that was abuse," and I'm not, then I'm not trying to change somebody's opinion and and invalidate how they feel about an experience. That's their experience, and whatever words they want to use to assign to it. I just sometimes, in thinking about the person listening who experienced something similar, who is afraid to call it abusive, um, and I, I want them to know that they're. They're not alone, and their experience was valid. This is from the love survey filled out by uh, <laughs> a person who calls themselves, I have 15 persons in me. Which name do you want? And they write, I love my pitch black cat who was born on my lap eight years ago. 
horribly passed away last year, and I love how I can think of him, my best four-legged pal, in love and gratitude for what was and for having had him, and not spiral down in agony and never being able to say his name because it'll hurt. It does hurt. We need a degree of that, sweetie, but I'm proud of myself that I'm not lingering in any negative emotions, but rather look back at what we did have. I have one of those digital uh, photo frames in my living room with a you know, rotating bunch of pictures, and I have pictures of every dog that I've ever owned, and every time a picture of them comes up, I talk to it, and uh, it's always a positive feeling, and you know, i kind of similar to what you share. I love my apartment. I can't work because of my bad mental illness. I've lived in a homeless shelter for a year, and now I have a two-bedroom apartment. I love it even when it's a mess. I love my family and granny. I'm so proud of them. We are basically the definition, with many others, of course, of a family whose reality show would put the Kardashians out of business. Oh yeah, we're something, and I love us to bits. They always have my back, and I love how selfless each of us can get for one another. I love how I keep the responsibility of my own mental illnesses and health in my own hands. When I found that I didn't get enough care from my, quote, treatment team and no therapy, I took matters into my own hands and bought neuropsychology and therapy books and started studying with help of many podcasts and webinars. I love how I didn't just put my life in my psychiatrist's hands, even though I was and still am a little super depressed, etc. I love my open-mindedness. I love being able to analyze and see matters objectively. I love being poor, theoretically, but feeling rich, mostly. I love ordering and supporting small, sustainable businesses in my favorite local bookstores. Oh, that is a great one. I love pottery and ceramics. In fact, I love being creative, using my head and hands to create something either horrible or beautiful. I love being inside at home under the covers, especially when it rains outside. That's such a great one. I love giving to others, be it presents or help or just being there to listen. I love drinking local apple cider vinegar, realizing that I actually now like this dirty, strong drink. I love the health effects actually working and feeling better. I love connecting in an instant to people, feeling safe, feeling valid, and having a laugh here and there. I love collecting things and making random photographs and collages to save certain moments in life forever. I love COVID-19 face masks, wearing them outside and almost everywhere except at home because if I wear that mask, I don't have to wear my own happy mask. Those are so great. So great. Thank you for those. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by me, a woman who calls herself me. She writes, I recently came to visit my hometown in England after living abroad for a long time. I had gone to the pub with some friends and had managed to successfully leave before getting drunk and despite them continuing to drink, a rare achievement for me as I struggle with a dependency on alcohol and I'm trying to cut down with various degrees of success. I decided to walk home and was suddenly filled with this intense happiness. 
Happiness at feeling safe to walk on the streets alone and not having to be afraid of rabid dogs as I do where I live. Happiness at my success with leaving the pub. But it was more than that. I felt at peace in the world and sure of who I am. Two things which I constantly feel uncertain about and it messes me up. I felt like this feeling was what it would be like to move through the world without having mental illness and I got to experience that for once. Like a quiet miracle. I knew even as it was happening that it would be temporary and sure enough it was. But for that 40-minute walk home, I wasn't anxious. I wasn't having repetitive memories of the worst times in my life, like some macabre, uh, never-ending roundabout. It just was me, there, happy, not joyful to me, uh, not joyful, not a big emotion. I was just quietly happy and at peace and felt safe. It so rarely happens that even now, a week later, it still shines out to me as this golden memory. It gives me hope that this is what I'm fighting towards. Because if I can get that feeling more often, like I'm a real person, then all this struggle to get better will have been worth it. Mm. So awesome. So awesome. And I love I love those moments that are a bit sublime, you know. They're not earth shaking. You know, there's no we didn't win the lottery. But we're just able to see the beauty around us and feel comfortable in our skin. And why is it so hard to get to that place? But yeah, when we do get there, it's such an amazing feeling. Well, I hope you got something out of this episode. And I hope if you're out there and you're struggling, you know that you are, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.